Good Tuesday, this is Ozarks at Large. This fall, KUAF is launching a couple of new podcast series. Last week, the first episode of The New Classroom, hosted by Zuzanna Sytek and featuring work from Ozarks at Large reporters, debuted. The podcast, created with support from the Walton Family Foundation, examines how the pandemic has made an impact on education and likely will continue to do so. On today's edition of Ozarks, we'll spend time with the first episode of another new podcast, The Movement That Never Was, A People's Guide to Anti-Racism in the South and Arkansas, written and executive produced by Paul Kiefer. This is the first of five parts and is created with support from the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation. In conjunction with the series, KUAF will host public discussions connected to the subject matter. Thursday evening, we'll partner with the Fayetteville Public Library for a discussion from 6 until 7.30. This virtual event is free but requires advanced registration. You can sign up for the conversation at the Fayetteville Public Library website, faylib.org. We'll remind you about that after this first episode of The Movement That Never Was, A People's Guide to Anti-Racism in the South. In the past summer, Northwest Arkansas saw its fair share of Black Lives Matter protests. For a whole lot of reasons, this wave of protests against police brutality is different from any others in living memory. But there is one reason that's getting a lot of attention. This time, a whole lot of white people are turning up. Actually, in a lot of cases, white people were the majority at protests. And a lot of the white people who went out into the streets this summer, many of them for their first time, We're out there just trying to find their place in this movement that's arisen to address racist policing. And even though the protests aren't nearly as widespread as they were in June, that movement is far from over. It's just evolving. And now, some of those white people are trying to figure out what's next. That means sorting out what it means to be white and anti-racist. From KUAF Public Radio and with funding from the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation. I'm Paul Kiefer, and this is The Movement That Never Was, a people's guide to anti-racism in the South and in Arkansas. The term white anti-racism has been tossed around a bunch in the past months. This probably isn't the first time you'll hear it explained this year. But for some people, it's still unfamiliar. So with that in mind, I'm going to have someone with more expertise explain why anti-racist is not the same as saying, I'm not a racist. So white people say they're not racist because they don't want to feel the shame of someone else calling them racist. So I'm not a racist is a reactionary response. I'm an anti-racist is a positive affirmation that somebody is participating in activities that uh, dismantle racist white supremacist practices. That's Lisa Corrigan. She's an associate professor of communications and the head of the gender and women's studies program at the University of Arkansas. Lisa has been involved in anti-racist trainings for all of her adult life, so we're going to rely on her to explain some basics. To boil what she said down a little, calling yourself an anti-racist is a commitment. You can't be a passive anti-racist. And anti-racists generally share a common goal. The goal is to redistribute power and wealth so that the culture is more equitable and healthy. The hard part is getting a critical mass of white people to agree to that goal. Lisa says that most white people won't materially benefit from anti-racism. That's the opposite of the point. But there is a moral incentive. You know, the goal of 
anti-racist activism is also to liberate white people from their racist violence, <laughs> right? There's an intrinsic worth to that for white people and for everybody else. But white people can't see that often through the fear of failure and and also the projected fear that they're going to be dominated by people of color the way that they have dominated people of color. But none of that comes close to answering the question that so many white people are asking right now. What's next? What does one actually do to be white and anti-racist? If we don't figure that out, there's a distinct possibility that most of the white people who join the protests will hang their cardboard signs on the wall as a badge of honor and call it good. If that happens, white anti-racism will once again fail to become a movement. I'll repeat that because it's at the heart of this series. If we think of a white anti-racist movement as a mass mobilization of white people to redistribute wealth and power, this country has never seen one. But Lisa Corrigan thinks there's a chance that this moment, a pandemic, mass unemployment, political unrest, could be an opportunity for that movement to start forming. There have always been white anti-racists. It's just that they have not existed in public in the same form over time. So in this moment, I think what you have is you've got a bunch of furloughed, white, um, educated, middle-class folks. The, you know, the white folks that are furloughed and, and quarantined are hungry for direction, and they see that it's a pivotal moment for them to, you know, pledge their time and money and efforts towards racial justice in a way that they they have not and could not previously. So again, if these newly activated white people can figure out what to do next, we might finally see a real white anti-racist movement take shape. But there is no single answer to what that movement would look like in practice. In this episode, we're going to start looking for answers in the most obvious place. We're going to look at what happened the last time a critical mass of white people got involved in an anti-racist movement. And for that, we need to go back to the 1960s. Fires of frustration and discord are burning in every city, north and south, where legal remedies are not at hand. Redress is sought in the streets. If we're looking for a case study in large-scale white involvement in an anti-racist movement in the 60s, there's one group in particular that stands out. It was called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, but it's usually known as SNCC. So we'll start with some background. In February 1960, the sit-in movement kicked off in earnest at the Woolworths in Greensboro, North Carolina. And then in April of that year, a group of black college students assembled for a conference at Shaw University in Raleigh. The conference was organized by an older civil rights worker named Ella Baker, and her vision was to create a student-run field organizing group that would make leadership decisions democratically. What emerged from that meeting was SNCC. And for the next year, they stayed focused on boycotts and sit-ins. By 1961, they helped organize some of the freedom rides across the South. And then over time, their staffers, who were still mostly black college students, fanned out across Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, and Arkansas to run voter education programs, voter registration campaigns, and protests. And in 1964, SNCC was also responsible for what was arguably the peak of direct white involvement in the Southern Civil Rights Movement. So what did that white involvement accomplish? And who were the white people that got involved? 
Let's start by meeting one of them. Uh, yes, my name is Dorothy Zellner. Um, I got involved in the civil rights movement 60 years ago. One morning in February 1960, she was sitting in a coffee shop in midtown Manhattan reading the New York Times when she spotted a story about the Greensboro sit-in on a back page. A few weeks later, she was on her way to Miami for a sit-in training. Mainly it was training how to be abused and not to uh, lose one's temper and fight back. She joined a protest there, she got arrested, and then she got out and helped organize the first sit-in in New Orleans. And about a year later, she got a toe in the door at SNCC's headquarters in Atlanta as a typist and contributor to their newsletter. And when she joined, Dorothy was one of only a small handful of white SNCC staff. Most of them were Northerners like her. A much smaller group were actually from the South. Before we go any further, Dorothy wanted to make something very clear. If we're going to turn our attention to white involvement in SNCC, we need to emphasize that white people were never meant to be the faces of the organization. What we are talking about was a movement that was 95% black. Uh, the organization SNCC was black-led. It was not an integrationist organization as such. I mean, the goals were not to have, you know, one sort of happy community with everybody holding hands. It was basically uh, a black organization that had, as its goal, uh, freedom for black people. And it, I must say, graciously allowed white people to participate in it to some degree. After three years of small local protests and voting rights projects, SNCC was looking to scale up its operation. And at that time, there was one place in particular where civil rights leadership saw the need for something dramatic. No state in the union has gone to such extremes to prevent the participation of Negro citizens in political life as the state of Mississippi. So SNCC leadership decided to focus their energy on a massive voting rights campaign in Mississippi. They called it the Freedom Summer Project. And the basic idea of the project was to send a wave of volunteers to the state to help boost the existing voter registration campaigns organized by local black leadership. And SNCC's leadership wanted that wave of volunteers to include white people, lots of white people. So they asked Dorothy to head back to the North to lead the volunteer recruitment drive. Her job was to find the white people. We did, we did not push visibility of white people, except for Mississippi. And the idea here was, uh, you know, putting it in kind of crude terms, the only people that the United States cares about are white people. So, and black people will just be getting killed. So white people have to show up and then the press will come. So you could say that that was kind of a cynical manipulation of people. Um, as one of the recruiters, there was nothing devious about this. We explained, yes, that's why we want you to go. Dorothy went college to college with a team of recruiters, interviewing every potential volunteer to weed out anyone who might be in it for the wrong reasons. By early June, SNCC had found more than a thousand recruits. When People applied for this project, you know, they had to fill out uh, a form, an application form. And what we were very interested in was who were their parents, who was their congressperson, who was their senator, 
and who were the newspapers in their area. So this was a very conscious thing. These white students, they knew perfectly well. We told them that they were going into a very dangerous situation. They chose to go. They found out on the very... Uh, while they were being trained, that the first group of people going to Mississippi, that three had, had been killed. You might know what she's talking about there. In June 1964, three civil rights workers were killed by members of the Ku Klux Klan in Neshoba County, Mississippi. One, James Cheney, was a black Mississippian. The other two, Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner, were both white New Yorkers like Dorothy. Their bodies weren't found for more than a month. And during all of that, the new SNCC recruits were being trained at a school in Oxford, Ohio. Despite the news, SNCC Field Secretary Bob Moses had to keep the training rolling. He said, this, we won't blame you if, you if you leave, if you go home. We don't know what's going to happen. Three people are gone already. You may be, he said to them, some of you won't be coming back. They did not go home. They kept on going to Mississippi. And Dorothy went with them to Mississippi. She and the other staffers and volunteers from the North and the West fanned out across the state, moving into small black communities to spend 10 weeks doing voter education and registration. But not all of the Black Snake staff thought the presence of white volunteers was helpful. One of the people who was most opposed was a young Snake field organizer based in Greenwood, Mississippi, named Stokely Carmichael. Like Dorothy, he was from New York. And he had also come south at the beginning of the decade to join the movement. By the time Freedom Summer came around, Stokely had started to doubt the value of the white presence in SNCC. Well, you know, um, I guess the probably best way you can term it was that inside of SNCC, there were nationalist forces and non-nationalist forces. That would probably be the best way to pose it. And the summer project was opposed by the nationalist forces. We had said, number one, that doing that would begin to give only a false hope to the people, one because they would see all these things just for a summer, and once the summer was over, it'd be back to business as usual, and we could not sustain it. There are many, many other points, but um, these are some of the points that uh, we hopped on. Of course, we were very strong about the point that we didn't also want a lot of white students to come down because we knew what would happen, and the atmosphere would change, and then once again, the uh, African masses in Mississippi would think that uh, they were saved by uh, whites. And then there was this idea that white volunteers would bring attention to the situation in Mississippi. As Dorothy said earlier, the whole point of bringing white northern volunteers to the state was to draw the eyes of the country. So once again, what it seemed to me is that the movement itself is playing into the hands of racism. Because what you want is a nation to be upset when anybody is killed, and especially when one of us is killed. Yes, then, so it just played into the hands of racism. And it's almost like, you know, for this to be recognized, a white person must be killed. Well, what are you saying? I mean, we're dying. But what really knocked the wind out of the Freedom Summer didn't happen in Mississippi. It happened in New Jersey. Actually, what happened in New Jersey was really the focus of the summer. There is every four years in the political life of America a ritual. Representatives of the two major parties meet to choose by open vote their presidential candidates. That year, the Democratic National Convention was being held in Atlantic City. Lyndon Johnson was the nominee, and a handful of party notables had started to show limited support for the civil rights movement. But in Mississippi, the Democratic Party was all white. And there, like in much of the South, the Democratic Party primary was really the only election that mattered. 
So a group of black leaders, namely a Mississippian named Fannie Lou Hamer and both Ella Baker and Bob Moses of SNCC, founded a new party in 1963. They called it the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, or the MFDP. The volunteers in Mississippi had spent the summer registering black voters in the MFDP, and SNCC leadership had a plan. When the convention rolled around in August, they would head to Atlantic City to claim their place. An integrated group from Mississippi calling themselves Freedom Democrats was challenging the official delegation from that state. It would be up to the Committee on Credentials to decide which group to seat, the Mississippi Freedom Democrats or the official delegation. It was a controversy which could rip open the convention. Mr. Chairman, and to the Credentials Committee, my name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, and I live at 626 East Lafayette Street, Ruseville, Mississippi, Sunflower County, the home of Senator James O. Eastland and Senator Stennis. If the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? Fannie Lou Hamer famously testified in front of the convention's credentials committee. And after it, there seemed to be a decent chance that the majority of party delegates would vote to allow the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party to represent the state. But midway through her televised testimony, President Johnson had the broadcast cut off. Behind the scenes, his staff were scrambling to intervene to prevent the MFDP from being seated. Johnson was facing a tough Republican challenger in Barry Goldwater, and he didn't want to lose white Southern Democrats. So he stepped in to prevent the issue from being put to a vote by the delegates. And as a weak compromise, he offered the MFDP two so-called at-large seats. They could watch the convention, but the all-white delegation would hold all the voting power. The MFDP refused the offer, and it was humiliating. But it was even more painful for the SNCC staff in Mississippi. They had spent 10 weeks enduring constant white backlash. Black churches had been burned, and volunteers had been beaten, and three black Mississippians had been killed for supporting the project. And they'd done it all in hopes that they would finally carve out a place for black political power in Mississippi. They were counting on their white liberal supporters to take a risk for them. What happened in Atlantic City left many black SNCC staffers wondering if they could really count on their supposed white allies at all. And to make matters worse, black SNCC staffers in Mississippi had noticed a troubling pattern. All across the state, black staff and volunteers watched as some of their white counterparts talked down to their black hosts or pushed back against black leadership. And as Stokely and the others who had opposed white involvement from the start predicted, there was also a growing sense that the white volunteers were being treated as saviors. So in the end, the Mississippi Project left a bitter taste in the mouths of many black SNCC workers. But SNCC didn't give up. A few black and white SNCC workers wanted to try again to see if they could fix the Freedom Summer model. And SNCC wasn't only working in Mississippi. It had operations across the South, including in Arkansas. So in the spring of the next year, a pair of black students from Temple University in Philadelphia drove down to the SNCC headquarters in Atlanta. One of them was Michael Simmons. During the visit, we met uh, Jimmy Travis, a Mississippi SNCC veteran 
who had been shot in the head in 1963 during an assassination attempt on SNCC leader Bob Moses. Upon finding out that we had planned to go to Mississippi, Jimmy encouraged us to bypass Mississippi and go to Arkansas SNCC. He felt that the 1964 Atlantic City defeat had created a malaise in the Mississippi movement. That's actually Michael reading from a chapter he contributed to a book called R. SNCC. It's about the SNCC projects in Arkansas. And we also talked over the phone. I think Arkansas, um, at that point in, in uh, 1965, was probably the best project in SNCC. And one of the main reasons why the Arkansas project stood out was because its leaders, a black Arkansan from Willisville named Jim Jones, a black North Carolinian named Worth Long, who was studying at Philander Smith College in Little Rock, and a white Ohioan named Bill Hansen, were some of those SNCC leaders trying to correct the mistakes of the Mississippi summer, at least where the prominence of white volunteers was concerned. In 1965, they were planning their own Freedom Summer, and they wanted a balance of black and white volunteers. But as it turned out, scaling down the white involvement in the Arkansas Freedom Summer wasn't enough to fix the problems that have been seen in Mississippi. Those problems were a lot deeper. Michael landed at the project in West Helena, During that summer, he was held at gunpoint, he got arrested, at one point he was beaten by a mob, so things got rough. And at the end of the summer, the community decided to throw a party for the SNCC volunteers who were getting ready to leave. The the interaction between the community and the white volunteers was a very subservient one. Um, It was, oh, thank you for coming here to help us and sacrifice and well, it was just a subservient one, I guess I can say. But, but, and, but the attitude towards myself uh, uh, and other uh, African Americans who who came from outside the South, we were much less appreciated. And there was just a sense that the white people sacrificed more being there than the black people. After that, Michael didn't stick around in Arkansas. He and a friend headed to Atlanta, where a group of black SNCC veterans were organizing a new voter registration project. And there, Michael and his colleagues started talking about their frustrating experiences with white civil rights workers. I began to reflect on my recent past. Things like talking to a white sociologist as a prerequisite for joining SNCC, and my experiences in Arkansas under a white project director began to crystallize into a view that black control of the civil rights movement was an act of empowerment. I began to realize that the process of liberation was as important as liberation itself. Indeed, if the black community felt that it owed its liberation to white people, then the fundamental problem of subservience to whites would not be addressed. It would only perpetuate a racist paternalism that was as destructive as the overt racism that we were fighting against. The Atlanta Project became the first group to explicitly embrace the idea that SNCC should be an all-black organization. And that idea started to pick up momentum. A bunch of notable staff started pushing for SNCC to transform itself, to focus on black power and black identity. But the people at the Atlanta Project took a lot of heat for stirring the pot. And largely as a consequence of that, Michael and the rest of the Atlanta Project were shut out of the conversation that followed, even though their idea had found a lot of traction in SNCC. In fact, it found so much traction that by 1967, Black SNCC membership decided to hold a vote about whether the organization would officially become all black. When they voted to 
to make SNCC a black organization, it was at a, a uh, all staff meeting in a place up in uh, New York State. And the Atlanta Pirates, we took, we did not participate in the vote to kick the white folks out of SNCC because at that point, the tension level within the organization towards us and us towards them was so acute that we felt that if it was viewed that we had engineered a vote, that the vote wouldn't mean anything. And in the end, the members did vote to make SNCC all black. After that vote, the executive committee asked all of the non-black staff to resign. Dorothy and her husband had held on up to that point, but in the end, they also resigned from their positions and went on their way. For those of us who were whitehead, who had been around for a while, it was a very painful experience. And looking back at it from this vantage point, I, I still find it painful, uh, and I, I, I still think it was wrong. But I think uh, now I'm, becoming, I'm able to appreciate uh, and understand it. And it was a breakdown of trust for very good reasons. I mean, they were, they were real reasons. They weren't just, you know, anti-white feelings. They were actual reasons. But SNCC didn't just ask the white people to leave the movement entirely. Here's what Michael wrote about that decision. Instead of viewing black power as an expression of self-determination of the black community, black power is viewed as an act of defiance and disrespect by ungrateful, irrational blacks towards the largesse of, quote, good white folks, unquote. The failure to organize the white community seldom features in this narrative. The discourse on black power suggests that it restricted participation in the civil rights movement, and it is not addressed as an attempt to expand the movement to the white community. Whites who took the view that if they could not work in the black community, they would leave the movement are never critiqued for this myopic political position. And there's a pretty clear subtext to that. The reality is somebody has to organize these white people. I mean, I mean, there is no, there is no resolution. In 1967, the idea of white people organizing other white people wasn't new. Actually, it nearly found footing in Northwest Arkansas a couple years earlier. There were attempts by Arkansas SNCC to go into the mountains, to go into the Ozarks and organize. That's Bill Hansen. He was the SNCC project director in Arkansas. I mentioned him earlier. He was the white guy from Ohio who helped get the thing off the ground. And Bill was one of SNCC's earliest white staff. I was the second white after Bob. Bob was the first white. He's talking about Bob Zellner, Dorothy's ex-husband. SNCC sent Bill to organize protests in Arkansas in 1962. It was originally only supposed to be a three-week stay. Instead, he wound up sticking around for six years. And he was one of the organizers behind the Arkansas Freedom Summer. After it came to an end, Bill stuck around to try and keep SNCC's presence in the state alive. But when it came to organizing white people, Bill wasn't willing to risk it. His wife and kids were black, and as far as he was concerned, 
organizing white people meant putting their safety at risk. I, I was not going to leave my wife and children behind. And there was no way I could move into, into the mountains with a, a black family. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Instead, Bill remembers that there was really only one white guy in the Arkansas SNCC office who wanted to put his weight behind organizing white people. Tommy Martin was from Conway? Somewhere. Somewhere up north. And Tommy wore cowboy boots. I mean, he was, he was a hillbilly. He wanted to do something. But Tommy Martin was more or less on his own. And once the Arkansas Project came to an end, Bill didn't manage to keep track of Tommy. He and his vision of organizing white people for the anti-racist cause seemed to have vanished back into the Ozarks. There weren't any other Tommy Martins. But what happened to Tommy Martin's project in the Ozarks more or less set the tone for all the other attempts by former SNCC staffers to get their own white anti-racist projects off the ground in the South. After 1967, a handful of white civil rights workers, including Dorothy and her ex-husband, tried to shift their energy to organizing in Southern white communities. They tried recruiting on sidewalks and on college campuses and in lumber mills. But none of those projects lasted more than a few years with very little progress before they fell apart. In some cases, the organizers didn't find a foothold because they were seen as outsiders. In other cases, police harassment forced organizers to skip town. But if you listen to those white organizers explain why their projects died, there's a common thread in their answers. It was just too difficult. But Michael says that doesn't cut it. Given the hold of racism in, in the culture, it's, it's very possible that organizing white people would, at least at that point, been a, a difficult task. But I would argue that going into Mississippi in 1960 to organize black people was, was no more difficult. So that there is no rationale to say, well, you can't expect us to organize these kind of because the attitude was that the white folks were so backward that we couldn't make inroads. And my view was, while that may be true, you still have to do it. You still got to try, you know? By the late 1970s, practically all the momentum of the civil rights movement had disappeared, and so had SNCC. And if you ask the average white American at that point, you might think that the civil rights movement had transformed white Americans' attitudes towards race. You might hear formerly unrepentant segregationists start talking about housing prices and public safety to cover up their beliefs. People who were once explicit white supremacists instead began talking about why the racial wealth gap would close if black Americans just made better life choices. The civil rights movement, and the white people involved in it, fell short of shaking the foundations of white America. So right now, we're confronting a lot of the same problems all over again. If we're finally going to right America's racist wrongs, then this time, white America will have to change in more dramatic ways. And that starts with changing the way that white people get involved in this movement. We don't want to repeat the messiness and disappointments of the 60s. Which brings us back to the point of this series. White anti-racism is nothing new but it's been in a nascent form for decades. To understand how a white anti-racist movement could take shape, we need to understand what's been tried and what hasn't been tried and what organizers are trying right now. So that's what we're here to explore.
The Movement That Never Was, A People's Guide to Anti-Racism in the South and Arkansas, is a production of KUAF Public Radio in Fayetteville and was written and executive produced by Paul Kiefer. Our theme was composed by Kevin Blagg. You can learn more about this podcast series at KUAF.com. That was the first of five episodes in the new KUAF podcast, The Movement That Never Was, A People's Guide to Anti-Racism in the South and Arkansas. KUAF, the Fayetteville Public Library and the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation, who provided support for the series, will present a public forum about the subject Thursday night from 6 until 7.30. You can register in advance for the free virtual discussion by going to the Fayetteville Public Library's website, faylib.org.